I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. Today, I sit down with Arnold Vandenberg to have one of the most impactful conversations I've ever had on the show. Now, Arnold survived the Holocaust, and he tells his remarkable story. Arnold was actually one of the only members of his family to survive the Holocaust. He actually ended up losing 39 family members during that time. But Arnold didn't let his past dictate his future. So many people would allow those horrific tragedies to just derail their lives. But Arnold really cultivated a life and went after big things and became a, a very successful money manager and investor. And on this conversation, we talk about the big life principles Arnold's learned, how we can develop the power of our mind, the power of belief. And we hit a lot on the subconscious mind and how our thinking impacts so much of what we do and become in life. So if you're really interested in hearing a rise from the ashes type story and cultivating the life that you are capable of creating, I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Arnold Vandenberg. I have to tell you about the product I'm obsessed with right now. And when I say obsessed, I mean it. I am honestly obsessed and using this continually. So this is my Brava Smart Oven. So I actually used a Brava at a friend's house a few weeks ago. And after using it, I said I have to reach out to the team at Brava and bring them on as a partner of the podcast because of how much I love my Brava Smart Oven. So Brava is the world's fastest and most advanced smart oven that cooks with the power of light. So I had no idea about this, but cooking with light is actually two to four times faster than any other cooking technology. So being a busy father with two kids, I need something that's going to cook delicious, healthy meals, is really fast and super convenient. And my Brava checks the box on all three of those. Just last night, I whipped up a mouth-watering salmon. You know, one of the ones with the, the crispy, flaky outside, but then juicy, tender inside. And I also had a side of broccoli and butternut squash. And I cooked this all to perfection at the same time. It doesn't matter if it's breakfast, dinner, dessert. My Brava takes care of it all. So when I said it was fast and convenient, the team at Brava honestly knocked this out of the park. Imagine cooking your entire meal just with the press of a button. All you do is select what you're cooking, load your tray, and press the green button. They have thousands of fully automated recipes created by professional chefs, so your meal is perfect every single time. And a really crazy part, Brava regularly updates with new recipes and cooking modes all for free. There really isn't a more convenient and impressive cooking experience I've ever had. Cook crispy, bubbly pizza in 10 minutes, eggs and toast at the same time, you can even do a tray of roasted potatoes in 15 minutes, all with zero preheating. And one really fun thing, my, my kids love watching this, is you can actually watch your food cook on the Brava app, which is just really fun. It's like having an automated sous chef right at your side. So if you want to start having healthier, better meals, check out brava.com and make sure to enter code what got you there at checkoff for $200 off. Yes, $200 off. 
That's www.brava.com and at checkout enter code what got you there. If you're someone who's looking to join a hyper growth company that's global and 100% remote, then you might want to listen up and hear all about the exciting job opportunities at Clipboard Health. Most of us have known someone who never got the health care they needed. You know, one of those people who fell through the cracks. That's because America's hospitals are short-staffed. They don't have enough nurses, so patients don't get the care they deserve. I've personally had family members not get the care they deserve, which is why I appreciate and care so much about what Clipboard Health is doing. Clipboard Health matches nurses with hospitals and nursing homes so that patients get the care they need and nurses find the work they want. Clipboard Health is fixing a broken healthcare staffing marketplace, and they're also scaling a hyper-growth business at the exact same time. Clipboard Health is a Silicon Valley unicorn, and they're looking for people to join their mission to fix staffing in healthcare and give nurses more opportunities. Clipboard Health is looking for great software engineers, product managers, and operations leaders to join them today. They're global, and remember, they're 100% remote, so no matter where you live in the U.S. or the world, they want to talk to you. You can check out great opportunities at clipboardhealth.com forward slash WGYT. That's clipboardhealth.com forward slash WGYT. Are you looking for a delicious and healthy nutrition bar that is keto-friendly, low-sugar, and protein-infused? If so, look no further than New School Snacks, who's reinventing the low-sugar snacking revolution. Now, for me, health is one of the biggest things I think about, and eliminating the sugar from my diet is crucial, and that's why I love New School Snacks. So if you're one of those people who also want to change the way you approach nutrition and snacking, then head to NewSchoolSnacks.com for great deals on their collagen bar loaded with healthy fats from MCT oil, and while you're there, pick up one of their brand new mouth-watering French Toast Crunch Bars. That's NewSchoolSnacks.com. Arnold, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Very good, Sean. Thank you very much. No, this is an honor. I, I know I've told you this in the past, but you're truly one of my heroes. So this is just, I just feel incredibly lucky and fortunate to get to have this conversation. I mean, you're someone who has not let their past dictate the life that they're going to create in the future. And the way you've used your mind, the way you've positively impacted others, the way you've shared your wisdom and been so kind and humble with that has truly been just so impactful for me. So I, I'm just so excited to bring this this conversation to the listeners. But I don't know if there's a better place, and maybe the only place to start, is around your beginning and your early life. So I'll turn the microphone over for you, but I, I would love to just hear about the early days of Arnold. Okay. Well, I'm happy to be here, Sean, and I'm always happy to share uh, what I consider some great lessons Uh, that I learned through my life, through the Holocaust, through growing up and building a business and so on and so forth. So uh, it's always great to share that because it's so good to see people can benefit when you struggle and suffer and finally come to a conclusion. And now you can share that with somebody and they can learn it easily what it took you difficulty to learn. So if you want me to start off with uh, my life story, I would start off with the fact that I was born in Amsterdam, Holland during the Second World War. And I lived on the Prinsengracht, which is a very famous street, because Anne Frank, who uh, also lived on the same street. So we were probably a couple of miles, maybe six to eight blocks, I don't know exactly. Uh, We lived on 
823 and she lived on 267. So uh, we lived on the same street. We, our family followed the same pattern. Uh, when Germany came into Holland, uh, <clears throat> invaded Holland, the Jewish people went into hiding and they hid by their friends, Dutch people who were willing to risk their life to hide them. Because if you hid Jews and you got caught, you were sent to a concentration camp. So it was a very serious undertaking. The Frank family hid in an attic. My folks went to Marie and Hank Bunt. It was a Dutch family that was friends of theirs. They offered them their home and they built a little fake wall behind a closet where if anybody came in, they would go into the closet. All you did was see clothes and behind that wall was a space where you could hide out. And so they did that. And the problem was that we, my brother and I were only two and a half to five years old. So it's hard to keep two kids quiet. It was hard to keep me quiet in case somebody searches the house and that became a problem. And it's still hard to keep me quiet. <laughs> anyway, uh, so they had to find a solution. They, we did get hidden on the farm for a little while, but the farm people on the farm couldn't uh, keep watching the kids. So they had to find another solution, and they found a 17-year-old girl, it's hard to believe, who was willing to risk her life to save me and smuggle me through the German lines. And the reason that was so risky is you needed a passport. And the problem is <clears throat> they didn't have, my folks didn't have a passport because Jews uh, didn't have passports in Holland. My dad was born in Germany. My mom was born in Poland. When Hitler came, they saw it coming. And so they went into Holland and they lived there for a while, built a business and they had a very good life until the Germans invaded Holland. And they went into the hiding. And so now the big problem was, how do we get the kids into this orphanage? But they had to go on a train and they had to go through passports. So the Germans, uh, the Dutch people, had a fake organization, organization in the underground that made fake passports. And so she had a fake passport. The problem was it wasn't very good. And if somebody really took a serious look at that, they could see that it wasn't a genuine passport. So that was the risk. So in order to mitigate that risk, they put a gentleman in front of us. Like if we were seated here, this gentleman was right in front. So when the guard came up to check the passport, the strategy was to keep him so busy that he wouldn't have time to check everybody's passport because he could only hop on the train while it was parked there checked the passports, and then a whistle blew and he had to get off. So fortunately, this gentleman in front of us was able to keep this guard or officer, German officers, busy to where the whistle blew and they never did have to check our passport. So that was a big relief. I spoke with the lady that did that after the war, and she told me when he was talking to the guard, her heart was just pounding like crazy. I can only imagine she just thought, boy, if he checks my passport, we're in yeah. trouble. So anyway, she got me uh, to the orphanage, delivered me to the orphanage. Eventually, my brother came through another route. So my brother and I were in this Dutch orphanage. And I was in there from about age two and a half uh, to six when my parents 
uh, in the meantime, were sent to concentration camp. They were caught and they were sent to Auschwitz. Uh, they were in Auschwitz for about 15 months. It was just one of the most horrible experiences you can imagine. And you can see what's going on in Ukraine right now. That's the same kind of thing that was going on in Holland. You know, the Germans bombed, took prisoners, just terrible. Anyway, conditions in the orphanage were dire because uh, there wasn't enough food. There wasn't enough water. Uh, many conditions were difficult. Uh, a lot of the kids I learned eventually died there. I almost died from malnutrition. Uh, we used to be so hungry. You have no idea what hunger does to people, but you never forget it. Uh, we used to go out in the field and eat plants and flowers and things like that. We say, hey, try this. This tastes pretty good. You know, everybody's trying to help each other eat plants. Not a great diet, but anyway, it did, did cover some of the hunger pains. And the other thing you learned, you learned survival at a very early age because they would have us in for lunch. We would have one little piece of bread with a little flour, uh, little uh, candy type on there, little mints like. And what you do is you bow your head to pray. And then when you lift your head, somebody took your bread. Hmm. So you learn to cover it. Even as a child, you learn to lean over it and cover it and keep your eyes on it. So nobody could take it from you. That's why you're always so eating like that at lunch. <laughs> oh, he's curled over that salad there. No one, no one's getting a piece of that lettuce. <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, you learn different things about survival at an early age. It's just amazing. And you adapt. And so uh, I stayed there until I was age six. And when my dad picked my mom and dad picked me up, they were just shocked because my dad didn't even think it was me. Because when he delivered me to the orphanage, I was bigger than I was three years later. And so when I first walked in, he said, that's not Arnold. And I was just shocked. You know, I was so eager to, to go and leave the orphanage. And these were my parents. And then, you know, he says, that's not my son. My mom looked into my eyes and she said, that's Arnold. Hmm. And so anyway, I went with him, but kind of a cute story. He was going to put me to bed that night. And I asked if he would lift me up and I could turn off the light switch and sing good night to the sun. So apparently that's a ritual that we did before the war. He would lift me up. I'd get to switch the light switch off. And then I would sing goodbye to the sun. And so I asked him to do that again. And then he knew that I was his son because I had remembered that. And I didn't even know that I remembered it. Arnold, I, I get chills hearing that because I, I have a son who's three and a half. And the thought that I could lose him for a few years, go back to him, and then not be able to even recognize him. I, I, I know you're – what does that do for you? How, how do you think about that? Well, I, you know, one of the things that we all the kids wanted was to get back with our parents. So every time a survivor walked up the driveway, all the kids would run to him and hoping that it was their parents. Well, I used to do that too, but after a while, it never turned out to be my parents, so I never bothered again. Mm -hmm. So I was sitting out there playing with this girl in the front there, and she said, Arnold, guess what? You see those people coming up the driveway? I've heard that those are your parents. And I thought, 
looked at them and I didn't recognize them. And I thought, well, geez, if it is, that'd be great. It was almost too good to believe. I yeah. said, no, nah, I yeah. don't think it is. So then all of a sudden, one of the teachers called me and she says, Arnold, come on in. So I thought, geez, maybe that is my parents. So I go walking in there real excited. My dad looks at me and he says, that's not Arnold. And I go, oh. but then my mom stepped in and looked into my eyes and she said she knew it was me. Mm-hmm. And then that evening, he went to lay me to bed and I didn't realize this was a ritual we had done before the war. He used to lift me up. I could reach to turn off the light switch. And then I would sing Dach Sonature, which is goodbye, son. And he put me to sleep. So I asked him to do that. And then he instantly knew that I was his son because of the fact that this was something we had done before the war. And so that really got things going well. Well, I was very excited to leave the orphanage. Uh, I just couldn't wait to get out of there. It wasn't a place that I enjoyed being there. Nobody did. And so from then on in, we took a trip. We were on bicycle. I was in the back of my dad's bicycle. And we went to, to the farm where my brother was hit. During the war, my, uh, my brother was sent to a farm. And uh, he lived there. And so... I was really excited to see him because of the fact that we were split up in the orphanage. And what happened, one day I woke up and went to see my brother and he was gone. And I asked everybody and they couldn't find him and nobody knew where he was. And what happened is my brother was very gregarious, very lovable type of kid. And when the Germans come in, they didn't know he was a Jewish kid. They thought he was a cute kid. They'd give him rides on tanks and all of this kind of stuff. And the, the people who ran the orphanage was worried about Zig because he knew that he was Jewish and they were afraid that he would give that away. And there was many Jewish kids hidden in the orphanage would have given the whole operation away. And he said one time, my mom doesn't wear the star. Well, if he would have said that to a German officer, they would have known he was Jewish. So they, in the middle of the night, without telling any, without telling me, they moved him to the farm And I woke up the next morning and he was gone and I was just destroyed. That was probably the lowest point in my life where all of a sudden I'm all alone. And uh, so I couldn't wait to get him. And they changed his name from Zygmunt to Fritz to make it sound like a Dutch kid. And I kept telling my mom, I want to see Fritzy. I want to see Fritzy. She said, we're going to see him. She says, you couldn't wait. So we come up to the farm and he was standing there with a pail. He was getting ready to feed some of the animals I just jumped off the bike and almost my, we both almost fell off the bike and I just ran up and we hugged. And that was probably the happiest moment in my life because he was like my lifeline. He took care of me. He looked after me. He was really a great brother. And then all of a sudden he was gone. So that was a horrible situation, but then it was really relieved when I saw him. And then, the family got back together. My dad went back into business and we stayed in Holland for about four or five years. And then we came to America. So that's how all that got started. But one of the things I wanted to mention is there's a lot of lessons uh, that we learned from the Holocaust. And one of the great lessons I learned uh, from the Holocaust is when my mom and dad were on the train to Auschwitz, they were there with a couple of friends of theirs, and she went all through uh, 
Auschwitz experience with this friend. She was quite a bit younger. And my dad was with her fiance, and they all went to the Auschwitz together. The men and women were uh, were separated. So one of the experiences that her name was Beppy Cohn, and we're going to be celebrating her 101st birthday, uh, March 23rd. And she was there all the time with my mom. And she told the story that when she got to Auschwitz, on the way to Auschwitz, she had an argument with her mother and they weren't talking to each other. So when they got to Auschwitz, they were separating the men and women together. And her father went up to her and said, Beppy, I really feel I have a very bad feeling about this place. And I think you should apologize to your mother. Well, all my life, I thought that she had apologized. And I said that in the lecture. But it turns out five or six years ago, I was talking to her son. He says, no, the problem with my mom was she didn't apologize. And she suffered her whole life feeling guilty because she never apologized to her parents. So what happened is she went into into the barracks. She couldn't sleep. She stepped outside and there was a woman standing there. And they got to talking and she said, I see this big chimney with all this black smoke coming out. What is that? The lady said, well, before I answer that, let me ask you a few questions. And she said, sure. She said, did you come here with your children? She said, no, I don't have any children. She says, great. She said, did you come here with your parents? She says, yes, I did. She says, well, I hate to tell you this, but you're going to find out soon enough. And you might as well know now that is the crematorium and When women and children come to Auschwitz, they never keep them. They gas them the first day. Uh, That's number one. And number two, when when they're older people and they can't work, they also gas them. So it sounds to me like your parents were older and they probably were gassed. And that's the crematorium. And she said she just, her knees just got weak. She just had to go lay down. She said she couldn't believe it. Just such a shock, you know, coming out of a regular way of living into a place like that. And so she said the first thing she saw of is that she didn't apologize to her mother. So the first lesson you learn from that and that I learned and I took to heart. Whenever you're in an argument with a loved one, always apologize. That's my first rule. And I made that a rule when I learned that story. And I did that. And my wife and my uh, one of my daughters always used to, if I blew up and I, uh, in a situation, they'd always bet how long it would take me to apologize. And I got to the point where immediately when I did it, I walk and apologize. But there's another lesson I learned. First of all, if you lose your cool during an argument, even if you're right in principle, you're still wrong. Because when you get mad, your ego get in the way. And when your ego gets in the way, you could never solve an argument. And so there's a quote that says, when personality steps in, truth steps out. And when you lose your, when you get angry in an argument, that means you've spent, you're, you're spending your time defending yourself instead of seeking the truth. So it's a very important principle. And when we get into dealing with anger, which I will do later on the podcast, you'll see how critical it is because when you keep that anger inside of you and it 
prevents you from apologizing or resolving the conflict, the longer it goes, both parties get more upset, more upset, and then it's harder to come together. So if you immediately go in and apologize, you're, you're wrong because you lost your cool. So you're, you might as well apologize. And my experience has been that 50% of the time you're wrong anyway. So you might as well get it over with and apologize. And then you get to the truth quicker. So that's another important principle is that you have to apologize. You have to be objective. And it prevents you from building up anger. And by preventing up building up anger, you become a lot more healthier, clearer thinking and everything else. And I'll get to deal with that a little bit later. The next lesson that I learned, which is probably the most valuable lesson, is my dad was on a death march in Auschwitz. And we learned something that is really incredible. I am about 5'8", 158 to 161 pounds. Now, my dad was one inch shorter than me, and he weighed 85 pounds. So basically, he weighed almost half of what I do now. And he was on the death march. They, it was sub-zero weather. It was, you know, in Poland. And um, regular clothes, no winter clothes. They gave him a slice of bread, which is the equivalent to about two slices of our regular bread. And the water you got by scraping the snow off the guy in front of your shoulders. And you marched 24 hours. The snow was halfway up your knees. And if your knee touched the snow, which means you kind of buckled or you got weak, they beat you. And if you didn't get up, they shoot you. So my dad said as he started the march, he said, Hugo, what's the most important thing I can do to survive this march? Because, you know, he was trying to survive. And he thought about it and he said, as he got tired, he knew that the most important thing is to be able to keep going and keep moving his legs. But it was snowy and icy, and so you can easily slip. And so he said the most important thing was when he moved his leg, he made sure it was on solid ground, that he had a good grip. Excuse me. He would lock his knee so that he wouldn't fall down, and then he'd move the other foot. And he said, the more tired he got, the more difficult it was. But he said he was so focused on just moving his legs, he said, because that's about all he could do. So he said, I didn't think about how tired I was. I couldn't think about how cold I was. I couldn't think about how hungry I was. I couldn't think about how far we still had to march. I just didn't think about anything but just moving that leg. And every time I thought I couldn't take another step, I just concentrated on moving the leg and I was able to do it. And he said, I got into a rhythm to where I actually felt like the concentration. He said, you know, there's something about the mind. The more you focus it, the more strength you get. And so I really got into that and I was able to go through the whole thing. He said, we started with a wide field of people and by the time we got there, there was just a small group of people who made it. And I said, how did you make it? I mean, I couldn't even imagine, you know, even today, marching 24 hours without breaks. He said, it was something about the mind that I cannot explain. But there's something there when you focus. 
And I used that principle whenever I was in a tough spot to really just focus on what I had to do and just keep going. So that left an impression on my mind that I wanted to find out what that was. And I searched about it most of my life. And I'll tell you a little more about it. But anyway, that was one of the things that I thought was a very valuable lesson to learn that the principle, and I learned to answer the secret to that. And so uh, my family got reunited. We came to America. We moved in East Los Angeles in California. And uh, I started going to school there. And I had some very unfortunate experiences there because when we first got there, my mom said, geez, we're going to America. You heard all these wonderful things about America. So she wanted to make sure that we were dressed up properly. So she dressed us in a, she bought an expensive suit for us, which was short pants with the tie, later hosen like with long socks. And that's how I went to school. So you can imagine how that went over. First day, I probably got, well, several fights in it because, you know, kids were teasing us and my brother, turns out, was very strong working on uh, the farm. You know, he had to work with the farmer, and he had to do all the duties around there. It got to be very strong. He never really understood his strength. So when the kids were picking on him, he did real well. So he would just hit a kid, and the kid would go flying. That would be the end of it. But I was very weak and skinny, so we got into several fights. He took care of the, the kids that were bothering me, but it was very terrible experience to go to school that way and be received. But the next day I begged my, uh, my aunt, we had an aunt that survived the world uh, war because she moved to America before the war. And she went out, bought me a pair of jeans, bought both of my brothers a pair of jeans. So we felt really good going to school the next day. Arnold, and then I, real quickly, how many of your family members survived the Holocaust? Well, uh, we lost about 39 members of the family. So the only family, the only people that survived were uh, my mom and dad, my older brother and myself, everybody else. My mom was from a family of eight. No, she, nine kids. She was the eighth. And uh, they were all married and had kids. And so nobody survived, but my immediate family. So it's, it's one of those moments I, I don't even know how to respond to that. I, I, I literally can't comprehend that. Yeah, it's hard to comprehend. And it really bothered my folks more than me because a lot, I was a little yeah. kid and I didn't really know most of them. But my mom and dad, obviously being grown people, they, they felt the pain. And I used to come home from school every day. And at least two or three times a month, my mom would sit there with one of the pictures of her sisters and the candle and crying. And, you know, I just used to really feel bad for her. And one day she said to me, she's a very strong woman. She said, you know, Arnold, this celebrating my brother and sister's birthday just depresses me. I realized they're not going to come back. They're gone. I'm going to have to accept this. And so she took all the pictures and all the candles and all the prayer books. She put them in a box. She put them in a closet. And she said, I'm not going to ever look back. This is it. We got to move forward. Mm. And from that day on, she was fine. But it took many years to get over that, you know, imagine. So 
anyway. Uh, yeah, I interrupted you. You had just gotten the trendy new blue jeans. Well, well, I was saying we were going to high school. And when I got to high school, it was pretty tough school, pretty tough neighborhood. And uh, there was always fighting going on in our school, you know, for one reason or another. It didn't take too much to get into a fight. And I was just scared to death of getting into a fight because I was very weak and skinny and uh, wouldn't do very well in a fight. But anyway, one day we were taking pictures and I got pushed into this kid. And he thought I was, you know, pushing him. And so he chose me off and I, you know, that means you have to go fight. And so I was so afraid to fight the first day I checked it out. It didn't show up. I figured maybe he'd go away. But he didn't. The next day he saw me and he called me a chicken and said, you got to fight. So I realized there was no way of getting out of it. I couldn't stand the fact that I had chickened out, but I just didn't see any alternative. So I showed up for the fight. It was in the bicycle yard. And he was there with all of his buddies and all ready to take me apart, which he did. I didn't offer any resistance. He just hit me. I went down. He put his knees on my shoulder and just beat the hell out of me. And he beat me until he quit. He just quit hitting me because I was just like a punching bag. He, he got tired. So they finally got up. They all laughed about it. I went home that, that day and I was afraid my mom would see me. So I snuck in the back door and I went to the bathroom and I was just afraid to look in the mirror because I, if, if I looked anything the way I felt, it would have been terrible. So I washed my face and I pulled my hair and I got up to the mirror and I moved up a little bit just to show my forehead. That looked good. <laughs> okay, I'm so good so far. I was afraid to look at my eyes and it shocked me that my eyes weren't black. You know, no black eyes. And then my nose, it just hurt like hell. But as I moved it back and forth, I realized it wasn't broken. It was sore, but it wasn't broken. And my jaw hurt, you know, he hit me in the mouth and so forth. But all of a sudden, I had an epiphany. I thought, God, this is what I have been so terrified of. This is what I've been afraid of. This isn't all that bad. It isn't as bad as you fear. So there's the next lesson. Face your fears because your fears are always worse than what actually is going to happen. And so I got very excited right there in the bathroom. I thought, my God, I got up in front of the mirror. Just think about a hit back, you know. And I started thinking about if I would have hit back, then at least I would have bruised him a little bit, you know. So I thought, this is really great. My fears was gone. They're just totally gone. Once you face your fears and you face it, they dissipate. So anyway, that was a very important principle that I learned. Arnold, with that, I'm wondering what the process is like in your adult life when you face a fear, even now. What's the internal dialogue like when you're presented with those tough challenges and fears now? Yeah, I just say to myself, how important is this going to be five years from now? So I look into the future. You know, we all get caught up in the moment, something bad happens and you say, geez, and you just agonize and torture yourself and you go through all these things that your subconscious mind creates. It's the natural fear. And so once you face it, the fear goes away. And that means the, it, it, the exaggeration of that problem goes away. You start to face it and then you start thinking, well, how can I work my way out of it? So that's what I always use. How important is this going to be five years from now? Am I going to look back and say, 
like I did with the fight. I mean, here I feared the worst getting beat up and I got beat up and it wasn't that bad. I washed my face. I washed the blood off. I changed my shirt. I combed my hair and I was just, I was there. So that was an epiphany. That was an important lesson. If I saw the guy today, I'd shake his hand and, and hug him because he taught me something that you couldn't learn any other way, at least in that situation. So it was a very valuable lesson. And I think most of the time our fears overwhelm us to the point where it causes inaction. It causes you to not do anything. It freezes you. Move forward, look forward, keep your eyes on the goal, and then they fade away and you learn to deal with them. So that was an important lesson. And so that's what you learn in life, how to handle situations. And I became quite good at it. And actually, because I was such an angry kid, because of all the things that happened, uh, my, that anger actually came in handy because it was easy to get angry at a kid because I had all this repressed anger. So then I graduated from high school. But one of the great experiences in high school is one of the things I wanted to overcome was my inability to do anything physical. I was very weak and skinny. And at that time, when I got into this fight, I was already starting to climb the rope. My brother, as I said, was a very strong individual. And uh, he did very good. You know that event in the, you walk in the gym and you have this long rope hanging down. Have you ever seen that? Yep. Yeah. Well, that used to be an Olympic event. And when I was in high school, it was in every high school on the gymnastic team, they had rope climbing teams. So I wanted to be a rope climber because my brother was very good at it because he was strong. And he said to me, you know, Arnie, if you, if you go in the gym and start climbing a rope, it's going to build up your strength. And I thought, geez, that's great. And I walked in the gym and here's all these guys with these big physiques. I thought, geez, this is, a, this is what I want to do. So I went up to the coach and he was really a cool guy. And he looked at me and saw how weak and skinny it was. He said, well, why don't you start climbing the rope? And as you gain strength, we can move you into the other events. Well, after two years, I was still climbing the rope. You know what I mean? I wasn't strong enough for the other events. But anyway, I started to get a little bit better as I was climbing. I climbed two hours a day uh, for two years. So one day, a bunch of the kids were sitting around and it was getting into the ninth grade and everybody was choosing what sport they were going to go into. And I thought, so I was sitting there and one guy said, I'm going out for football and other guys going out for basketball. Another guy was going out for tennis. They say, Vandenberg, what are you going out for? I said, well, I'm going out for the rope climb. And so there's this kid sitting next to me. He looks at me and he says, you're going out for the rope climb? Like, you got to be kidding. You're going to be a weightlifter? <laughs> you know what I mean? And this kid was a weightlifter and a bodybuilder, and he was very strong for his age. His brother had gotten started at an early age. He said, I'm going to go out for a rope climb. I said, great. He said, I just can't believe that you would go out for the rope climb because he just didn't think I would be able to do it, you know? So I got my ego involved, and I challenged him to a race because I figured, hell, I'm climbing for two years. He's never done it. I ought to be able to beat him. Well, I got beat so bad, I wanted to cry right there on the spot. He was already all the way up, and I was only halfway up. So he beat me badly. It was just terribly embarrassing. So I got home that night, and I thought, geez, I've been climbing for two years. I'm not going anywhere in here. A guy's never climbed a rope beat me. 
how am I ever going to be able to make the team? And then a thought flashed in my mind and said, why would you consider quitting? You climb to get stronger and you're getting stronger. And I thought, you know, that's right. Even if I can't compete, I can build myself up in strength. And so I'm going to continue. So I continue it. The next year was the ninth grade. So now I was able to compete officially. And there's five guys on the rope team. And I made the fifth man only because there were only four guys applying. So it was an empty space. And the coach said, would you like to be the fifth man? And I said, yeah, but I'm not anywhere near these guys. That's okay. We only have four rope climbers. We need five. If you want it, you're the fifth man. So just to give you an example of how bad I was, these guys were climbing a 25-foot rope in about six seconds. My best time that year was 8.6 seconds. So, you know, a tenth of a second can be a lot in a 100-meter race. You can imagine how two and a half seconds, it'd be like a guy running 9.9 and another guy running 11 seconds. You know, he wouldn't even show up. So it was almost an embarrassment to the team. But the coach encouraged me, and he was a great guy and wanted to help me with it. So I climbed that year, and then after that, and here was the thing that changed my life. I went up to him, and I said, Coach, I've done everything you said. I've worked out two hours a day. What can I do to get better? I, I really want to get better. He said, you know, it's a funny thing. I've been thinking about you. There's a new style coming out in the rope climb. It's not only strength, it's technique. And it's a breakthrough, and the, and the people who are using it are making great strides. And there's the champion at this local school, and he's going to be climbing in the city championship. And what I'd like you to do is go down there and watch him and see how he does it, and then I can help you develop it. I don't know how to do it because it's brand new. So I thought, great, I got on the bus two hours. I got there an hour ahead of time. I'm just so excited to learn this new technique. So I'm sitting there, got the front seat right by the road climb, and the guy doesn't show up. And I am just really down. I thought, oh, my God, here's my chance. And the guy doesn't, excuse me, show up. So as I'm sitting there, I'm almost in a different state of mind. And I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, he comes running in. He's fixing his pants. He's fixed his jersey. He sits down, shoots up the rope in 4.6 seconds, and I'm just sitting there in awe. And when I looked at the clock, the whole room was swaying. It was just like I was in a trance. And I just I could see this guy going up the rope right today as we're speaking. It made an impression in my subconscious mind. We're right in there. And I was so excited. I couldn't wait to get home to start practicing and even on the bus, I'm out there moving my hands and kicking my leg, and people are looking at me at the bus. I didn't care. But the problem was I didn't have a picture and I didn't have a video. So I thought I'd go to sleep at night. Then I'd wake up about 3.30 in the morning because I was worried about forgetting how to do it. It's quite a different way of climbing the rope. You had to develop completely different muscles. So I would get up every morning about 3.30, and I would be practicing moving my hands and moving my legs and just kind of smoothly gliding up that rope. And it was so exciting to me. So anyway, after about six to nine months, I don't know exactly how many months it was, but I woke up one morning and I felt like a new man. 
I felt strong. I felt great. I thought, oh my God, I'm going to break my time today. I just know it. So I struggled through four or five classes, finally got to the gym. Coach, I'm going to break my time today. He said, great, warm up. So I warmed up, I grabbed the rope, and I sat down, and it just felt different. I thought, oh, this is going to be great. So I sat down, pulled up, and usually when I pull up, you know, I kind of struggle up. I just shot up, and I moved my hands. When I get to the top, I used to have to pull way down and reach way up there, barely touch the plate, and this time I could have hit it with my elbow. So I knew this was a great, and it just felt so easy and smooth, like I was in a dream. So I'm hanging up there, coach, what's the time? What's the time? He says, come on down. He's fiddling with his watch. I said, what's the matter? He said, Arnold, this is so good. I thought there was something wrong with my watch. I said, there's nothing wrong with your watch. I'm going to do it again. I did it 10 times in a row, broke that time. So now it was like a new program. So I was so excited about it with the time breaking. I said, you know what, coach, without thinking, I said, I think I'm going to become the new league champion next year. And he kind of woke me up and he said, well, Arnold, this is a great time and you've made a lot of progress. But in every school, they got five climbers and you got to beat each one of them to be the league champion. And so I was a little embarrassed and I said, yeah, you're right, coach. And I walked away and I said, bullshit. I'm going to be the league champ. I could just feel it. So that year started off as first man. Every guy was a little bit ahead of me, but each time I got into the meet, I beat him. I just knew I was going to beat him. It was just in my mind. It was just like a program. And there was one guy who was the league champion, and he was three-tenths of a second ahead of me. That's a lot when you're getting into the point where you're climbing at four and a half seconds Three-tenths is a lot. So he was sitting there. I walk in the gym, and he's sitting there kind of bored as we sat down. There was nobody at competition, and I wasn't really any competition either. So he was just sitting there, and I just had this great feeling. I sat down, and I hit 4-3. At that time, I was climbing 4-6. My best time was 4-6. His was 4-3. I hit 4-3. Hmm. Completely disorganized. The guy just kind of woke up and thought, Wow. So he tried, you know how you get into competition and you try too hard, you get off the program. So anyway, we changed places. He climbed the best he did that day was four, six. I climbed four, three, a lot of meat. And then we went in the championship and we tied for first. But it was a huge breakdown for me to go from where I was to first man in the league. And I won the league two years, three years in a row, two years after that, three years I got so good that I even climbed in the national AAU and placed ninth in the nation. And these were all college seniors. So I was a high school guy climbing in the national AAU. There's only three high school kids that even were able to make the meet. And I placed ninth. And if I'd have hit my best time, I could have hit either sixth or seventh place. Hmm. So I didn't hit my, but it was a breakthrough. Anyway, long story short, I graduated from high school. I got married. Uh, married my high school sweetheart. We went around four and a half years. We were married about four and a half years. And then we got a divorce. And that really put me into a depression. And that really upset me. So anyway, that was a struggle. I got so depressed, Sean, that I was depressed for almost four to five years. 
And it got so bad, the depression, I didn't know what was causing it, but it got so bad that I couldn't make it after 3.30 in the afternoon. It was just like it was 3.30 in the morning. And I was starting my business at that time. So I searched all the different ways. Why could I be so tired? Because I was pretty strong, you know. So anyway, a friend of mine told me that she had gone to this psychiatrist who helped her with the same problem. And so I went to see him. And I told him that I had developed a technique to get over the uh, get over the depression. I read an article that says, if you hypnotize yourself and go into a hypnotic trance for 20 minutes, it's the equivalent of three hours sleep. So I thought, wow, that's the answer to my problem. I learned to hypnotize myself, I used to hypnotize my friends. I, every day I'd lay down on the floor, 3.30 in the afternoon. I'd go in for 20 or 30 minutes and I could work until 10.30 at night with plenty of energy. So I used that for many years. So when I went to see the psychiatrist, I told him about it. And he said, how would you like to find out why you're so tired all the time and depressed? And I said, well, that would be great. He says, you found a good Band-Aid, but it doesn't solve the problem. So I said, well, that's why I'm here. So long story short, this is when we get into the anger lesson. And the thing I learned about anger is that the more you repress anger, let's say you get mad at me and you don't tell me how you feel. You just don't want to offend me or you don't want to do it for any reason. So you bottle it. But when you bottle it, you keep on thinking about it, you get more resentful. I sent a chart. Would you like to show the chart or should we just go on? Uh, you can just go on. I'll include the, uh, all the notes in the, in the show notes. So any charts, visuals, things like that. So anyone wants to go, you can just click on the show notes below and we'll have everything linked up. Okay. Well, this is an anger chart. It's called Dr. Truth's Chart on Anger. This is an individual that specialized in that. So what the chart shows is you go into repression that creates more resentment, and then it goes into indirect expression, which means it goes into your subconscious mind. Now, once that anger thoughts, these angry thoughts go into your subconscious mind, now that creates the depression, because when you do things that you know are wrong, thinking about anger thoughts, you feel guilty, and then the guilt creates the need to punish yourself. So you go into all these uh, indirect expression which are ways to punish yourself. It creates depression, addiction, compulsive behavior, alcoholism, smoking, gambling, eating disorder, sickness, on down the line. Every ailment known to man is can be caused by repressed anger. So that's a very important lesson for people to learn. And now when you tie it into the principle of apologizing sooner and not letting the people you're arguing repress their anger and you depress your anger, you develop much healthier relationship. And that's so important in a marriage. My first marriage lasted only four and a half years. My second marriage with what I learned, we're now going to celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary in April 29. So uh, I've learned a few things (laughs) along the line. And one of them is dealing with anger and being able to express it. My wife and I have a deal. No matter what it is that upsets us, we can sit down and talk about it. We may not agree, but at least not. let's not bottle it. And let's get it. I used to do it with my kids. But anyway, that's the most important lesson I learned on the anger bit. 
And that is a lifelong lesson. And I'll tell you one thing that has to go with that. And that is the ability to forgive. And that is another lesson that is absolutely critical because nobody can go through life, not be hurt. And if you don't forgive, you're just building up that anger. So I want to explain that on, on forgiveness. I've learned to forgive everybody that's ever done anything to me, including my ex-wife. And I've learned to forgive the Germans. Now, I always tell people, if I can learn to forgive the Germans, you can learn to forgive whoever hurt you. Because most of the time, you haven't been hurt that much. Uh, so you learn to forgive. And the most important thing in learning to forgive is to understand the other side. There's always another side to the story. And most people only look through the lens of themselves. Now, we are programmed to be selfish. So we are programmed to survive. We are programmed to take care of ourselves. So the way we look at things is only from our own point of view. We never flip the switch and say, what is the other person thinking? Or how is the other person thinking? And when you do, you start to moderate your anger because all of a sudden you see the other side of the story, which you can't see when you're looking through one lens. So the important thing is part of love is understanding. And believe it or not, I made a study of probably the most brutal person in Auschwitz. I wanted to understand what motivates these people. So there was this girl, long story short, her name was Irma Gressa. She was one of the worst German guards in Auschwitz. She did things that were just unthinkable to the women in there. And she was only 18 years old at the time when she started as a guard. And they ended up hanging her in the, in the Nuremberg trials for gross, you know, brutality and inhumanity and all of these kind of things. And she was only 22 when they hung her. So I searched into her life. And while I would still agree to punish her through hanging and every, everybody has to be accountable. I actually understood how she could get that hang, hangry. So you have a choice to do. You've been abused. You can choose the right way and you can choose the wrong way. And both of them have consequences. So th these kind of things help you to understand why people can do such evil and brutal things, not to excuse them, but to understand and to understand so you can diminish your anger and your hostility and eventually forgive them. And uh, that, that's a very important practice. And I would recommend anybody who is harboring things, whether it's parents or friends or anybody. And the other thing I've learned, and this really has helped, and only through life experience can you experience that. But I've learned that the people who hurt me also tend to hurt other people. They just didn't pick me out. It's just the way they are. And as I watch what happened to their life, things happened to their life that I would have never wished on them. So you don't have to be get even with people. My philosophy is don't waste your time trying to get even with people who hurt you. Waste your time. If you're going to waste your time, spend you don't need to get even with the people who hurt you. You should get even with the people who've been good to you. Hmm. So spend your time thinking about the people who've been good to you and be good to them 
rather than waste your time on negativity, thinking about the people who hurt you, it just makes you more angry. So you learn to forgive them, you get rid of your anger, and then you think about the people you love. And that brings me into the next lesson. And the next lesson I learned, this is just one of the greatest lessons of all. This is the most important lesson I can teach anybody. And that is the lesson of truth. And we will never know how powerful truth is. But let me give you an example. There was a, uh, uh, a Russian author by the name of Dostoevsky, Fyodor Dostoevsky. He was in a concentration camp in a Russian gulag, the Russian concentration camps, which are just as bad as the Nazis one. Anyway, he noticed an interesting thing that the people who did the best in surviving that kind of environment were people of character. And he got very intrigued about why would character make such a difference in being able to endure these atrocities and this kind of lifestyle. And so he spent his time learning and studying that. And he decided that if he ever got out of the camp, he would write books and novels and he would display what character does to an individual. He would show a person with a negative character and the play would show how it destroyed his life. And he showed a person with great character and how it enhanced their life. So I made it into a chart and here's what he concluded. When you lie, you lose the ability to discern the truth in yourself and others. In other words, when you lie, you put that in your subconscious mind, that becomes part of your ability to tell the truth. And so when the first thing that happens when you lie, you lose the ability to discern. Now, just think about how important that is to an investment manager when you lose the ability to discern the truth, right? Oh, yeah. You can really get punished there. <laughs> so when you lie, you lose the ability to discern the truth in yourself and others. Having lied, you lose respect for yourself and others. Not respecting anyone, you lose the ability to love. And I want to stop at this point and show you another lesson. There was a gentleman, a psychiatrist in Auschwitz, and uh, his name was Viktor Frankl. He was on the same death march as my dad, but they didn't know each other. And they were going through the march, suffering, and one of his friends turned over to him and he said, I hope our wives are doing better than we are. So he said that Victor uh, Frankl said to himself, he started thinking about his wife. And he said the more he focused on her, he got so caught up in thinking about her that he forgot that he was even on the march. And he said he could hear her voice. She sounded like she was right there. He didn't know whether she was alive or not, but she was present there. They talked to each other. She saw her smile. And he said, it taught me for the first time in my life, I realized, my, he said, a thought transfixed me. For the first time in my life, I realized that the greatest thing a human being can accomplish is love, the ability to give love and receive it. And he said, it also taught him that even in a dismal place like Auschwitz, a man can experience bliss in the contemplation of those they love. And his whole philosophy came on the basis that there is no greater thing that anybody can ever experience or accomplish in their life. The ultimate success pattern is, do you have the ability to love? 
Now, when you think about the fact that when you lie, you lose that ability to love, you lose one of the greatest potential achievement that a man can achieve mm. or a woman. Now, without love, all that remains are the base pleasures of life. Indulging in the base pleasures of life, you become morally depraved, and it all started with a lie. So the single greatest improvement a human being can make is to immediately take the position that lying, even white lies, affect your subconscious mind and affects your ability to function as a human being. And they are now doing studies with neuroscience. They can hook you up to a computer. They can tell what happens to your brain when you lie. And it actually releases certain chemicals that are harmful to the body and harmful to your health and so on and so forth. So that leads me into the next thing. And that is one of the most important things connected with the anger and the lying. And that is that everybody has, scientists now say, the lowest number I've seen is 6,000 thoughts per day. And the highest I've seen is 70,000 thoughts per day. And probably the one that I feel most comfortable with is a study that shows it's about 35,000. But whether it's 6,000 or 70,000 or 35,000, let's say that nobody disputes the fact that you have at least 6,000 thoughts a day. Now, just think if you have a thought, you put a black dot if it's a negative thought on the board and a yellow dot, bright orange, if it's a positive thought. Now, you look at the end of the day, what does your board look like? Well, what your board looks like is what you're going to be in the future because you are made a summation of all of the thoughts you've had in your lifetime. And that's at 35,000 a day, that's a billion thoughts for your lifetime over 78, 80 years. Now, what the students of the subconscious mind teach is that every thought you think eventually materializes in reality. So the more dominant thoughts you have that are negative, the more negative things you're going to accomplish in your life. Your world is not the world that you read about in the newspaper. Your world is the world that you created in your mind through your own thoughts. And the beauty that they learn in neuroscience today is they used to think that whatever you were by your genes and your background, that that was the way your life is fixed. They are now showing that your brain is constantly changing by the thoughts you have. It's called neuroplasticity. And you can create a whole new life just in the way you think. And let me give you a couple of quotes from my favorite collection of subconscious thoughts. Now, this is a book that was written by J.K. Williams. He studied the subconscious mind for 50 years. He said, I'll just read you a few of his principles. First, you are the architect of your destiny. Every experience or condition in your life, poverty or riches, success or failure, Health or illness is the result of action and purpose set in motion by you. Your thoughts create your world. Second, within the area of your life, you have creative power. You can make a mental image or a blueprint of the progress and expansion you want to achieve. And by pressing the concept of your, of your objective upon your subconscious mind, you can cause the condition you visualize in your mind to be created. So you can create your own reality by visualizing and when I went to the psychiatrist and I told him the story about my rope climbing experience, he says, 
he was just in awe. And he said, boy, that is just great. And I said, what do you mean? He says, this is what we teach in sports psychology. We teach you to set a goal. We teach you to visualize it. We teach you to affirm to yourself that you're going to be great. And eventually you believe it and you become it. And that's what you did. And if you'll do the same thing with your business, I was starting my business at that time, the same thing will happen. Well, my right arm just chilled up when he said that. Whenever I hear a great truth, I get chills on my right arm. I knew that that was true. And I was so confident in that, that I went home, cleared out my uh, apartment. I was living in a studio apartment, took put all my investment books online. I'm starting my own business. And I really believed, no matter what happened, that I was going to make it based on the experience. So I told him, if the subconscious can do all that, I should study it all my life. He says, absolutely. The more you understand the subconscious mind, the more you understand yourself, other people, you learn how to achieve. And so learning to understand the subconscious mind is critical. Now, let me just show you how powerful the subconscious mind is. This is hard to believe. This guy, Sir Arthur Eddington, some people may have heard of him. A lot of people haven't. But he was one of the greatest astrophysicists of the 20th century. He was on an equal of Einstein. He interpreted it, many of the theories of Einstein. Here's what he said. Sir Arthur Eddington is quoting and saying, I believe that the mind has the power to affect groups of atoms and even tamper with the odds of atomic behavior and that even the course of the world is not determined by physical law but may be altered by the volition of human beings. He's saying that on a microscopic level, your mind can affect atoms and everything that is out there in the real world is made up of atoms. So you can influence people, you can influence things, and you can create your own reality. That's what he's saying. This is a scientist. Now, Dr. Gustav Jung, one of the great psychologists of the 20th century, claimed that the subconscious mind contains not only the knowledge that it has gathered during the life of the individual, but that in addition, it contains all the wisdom of past ages, that by drawing upon its wisdom and power, the individual may possess any good thing of life from health and happiness to riches and success. So you ask me a question, how do you get through difficult times? You get through difficult times by having a goal that you want your life to complete. My goal was, the first goal I had is I wanted to be, I wanted to have a family because I never had a family. You know, people used to go to their aunts and uncles and cousins. I never had any of that. I always felt like I was missing something. So I wanted to have a family and I have a family now. I have three children, seven grandchildren and two great grandchildren. So I've accomplished the goal of the family. I wanted to be financially independent. I didn't necessarily choose to make a lot of money, which I happened to do because in this business you could do that. But the main goal was to be financial independent so I can follow my own dreams. And I wanted to have my own business. I've accomplished those things. The next dream was to take, and that was a dream in the last 30, 40 years. I just found a note that I had. I wanted to be able to take all this knowledge that I learned from all these different experiences and maybe put it into a book to help other people uh, with some of the things, challenges that I was faced with. 
Well, I found a book called From Poverty to Power, which I would recommend to anybody. I thought so much of the book that I wanted to give one to each one of my clients. So I called up the publisher and I said, Skip, I'd like to order about 2,000 copies of Poverty to Power. And he said, oh, Arnold, I, I don't have that much in my inventory. I only sell 15 a year. I said, this great book, you're only selling 15 a year? This is ridiculous. So I said, I'll tell you what, it doesn't have a nice cover and the printing is kind of shallow because he, he basically Xeroxed it. He didn't print it. I'd like to make it into a nice book and I'll pay for all the costs of it. And then I'll give you an order of 2000 for him. And I give them out to anybody who will read it. And in the cover, I wrote that one day I would like to take everything I've learned from all the books and different things, experiences, put it in a book. But when I read that book, I knew I could not improve on that book. So rather than write a book, I give this out as this is basically what I believe. And this is what has helped me to get there. Now, there is another two quotes. If I have the time, uh, I'd like to quote them. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So here's one by the greatest psychologist of the 20th century next to Gustav Jung, William James. The greatest discovery of gener of our generation. Now, don't forget, this is the generation that came up with the theory of relativity. The greatest discovery of the generation is the discovery that human beings, by changing the inner attitude of their minds, can change the outer aspects of their life. So he felt that that was the greatest discovery, that when we learned the subconscious mind, that we can literally program our own life and create the genie. What There's a book called The Genie Within. I'll tell you about that in a minute. That we can create anything we want to do with our life as long as we're willing to pay the price. And then the final of my favorite quote is by Emile Coup. I'm not even sure I pronounce his name. It's a French name. But he is the father of uh, auto-suggestion and affirmations and visualizations at the turn of the century. An unbelievable guy. He cured so many people of all kinds of diseases and so forth. Here's what he said. From this and other examples, we conclude, if the mind dwells on the idea of an accomplished fact, in other words, if you want to be a musician, you practice your daily deal, but you visualize yourself at the, at the top concert playing the violin, and you play that in your mind, and then the subconscious mind helps you to get that. So from this, we conclude that if the mind dwells on an accomplished fact, a realized state, the unconscious will produce this state. If this is true of our spontaneous auto-suggestion, it's equally true of the self-induced one. Every idea which enters the subconscious mind, if it is accepted by the unconscious, is transformed by it into a reality and form henceforth a permanent element in your life. So you can create it by affirmations, by visualization, by repeating it often, and so on. I have many other ones on that, but that kind of gives you the idea. Now, I have one thing which I don't know whether we have time for, but I have in this file, which is 550 pages of notes. I sent you the first 54 pages, which I've kind of edited, but they're articles and quotes and, and different things about the subconscious mind. And I have one on the subconscious mind 
that if we have the time, I'd like to read it to you what it actually does. This is the best out of 45 to 50 years of researching. This page is the best that explains how the subconscious mind works. And I'm quoting a woman by the name of Margaret E. White. And she explains how the subconscious works. And it says, I'm very accommodating. I ask no questions. I accept whatever you give me. I do whatever I'm told you do to do. I do not presume to change anything you say or do. I file it away in perfect order, quickly and efficiently. And I, then I return it to you exactly as you gave it to me. You think an angry thought, you create angry problems. Sometimes you call me your memory. I am the reservoir into which you toss anything your heart or mind chooses to deposit there. I work night and day. I never rest and nothing can impede my activity. The thoughts you send me are categorized and filed and my filing system never fails. I'm truly your servant who does your bidding without hesitation or criticism. I cooperate when you tell me that you're this or that. If you have a low self-image, you tell me you're no good, I'm going to make you no good. If you tell me you're great, I'm going to make you great. It's your thoughts that create the direction. And I play it back as you gave it. I'm most agreeable. Since I do not think, argue, judge, analyze, question, or make decision, I accept impressions easily. I'm going to ask you to sort out what you sent me, however. My files are getting a little cluttered and confused. I mean, please discard those things you do not want returned to you. Negative thoughts. What is my name? Oh, I thought you knew. I'm your subconscious. So there is exactly the way the subconscious works. It works like the computer. You type something wrong into the computer and you push the button, it gives it back exactly like you put in. You type in the right thing and it goes to work to do the right thing. So your subconscious mind does not think, it just acts. Your conscious mind is the direction. So your conscious mind is the software that you create the program and and the subconscious is the hardware. It just acts and produces whatever you create. So what you have to do as an individual that wants to improve their life is you want to always feed them your goals, your dreams, your aspiration, and your most positive thought. And I want to end it with this situation where Victor Frankel talked about how important love was. So I read an article by an individual who also believed that love is the greatest thing. He was a man by the name of Ashley Montague. And he he's a very interesting guy, actually kind of funny. He's got a British accent. They asked him, how come you spent all your whole life studying what makes people happy? He studied anthropology, sociology, psychology, every field connected with human beings. And he said, the reason I studied happiness because as a child, I was so profoundly unhappy. So he spent his life on it. And he said, now, the most important thing that he came out of all of his conclusions, 70 books, he concluded it in one article, which is a great article, Pathway to Fulfillment by Ashley Montague. And in it, he states, the greatest need of any human being is love. I can show it in your x-ray, in your bones. It shows up in everything. If you have it, it fulfills you. And if you don't have it, it destroys you. So he says, now let's 
ask the typical question. What if you wake up one day and find out that you're not as loving a person as you have the capability of being? He was being kind. And he said, then what do you do? He said, you act like a loving person because it's not what you eat. It's not what you think. It's not what you say, but it's what you do. Mm-hmm. And when you do it, you become it. So if you want to become a loving person, you practice loving things. And the best way that I can think of, and I wrote a three-page little uh, dissertation on this, but I'll give you the bottom line of it. If you look at the chapter in the Bible, uh, every Christian wedding starts off uh, with this describing love. Though I speak with the tongues of man and of angel and have not love, I'm become as a sounding brass and a tingling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, I understand all mystery and all knowledge. And though I have all faith that I can remove mountains, have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow my all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not love, it profit me enough. Love suffereth long in its kind, love envieth not, love vaunteth not itself, does not behave in seemingly. Seeketh not their own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoices in not in equity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hope all things. And the final he ends up with saying, St. Paul says, and there remains three things, face, hope, and love, and the greatest these is love. So those of you who want to learn how to practice love, those are the ingredients, the prisms of love. And I have translated them from the 16th century English into uh, modern English. And here's what it means. Tolerance, humility, composure, graciousness, consideration, thoughtfulness, goodness, charitable, magnanimity, uh, unpretentiousness, politeness, altruism, benevolence, affable, agreeable, sincere, honest, straight word, earnest, trustworthy, and truthfulness. So basically, we get down to the fact that it's character. And some of the greatest businessmen that I have studied have come to the conclusion that of all the great things you want to achieve in your life is develop the character, because it's the character that gets you through all the things, makes you a lovable person, an honest person, and that should be the dream of everybody. And then you can use what you've accomplished to help other people who are along the way. Well, Arnold, thank you for sharing that just remarkable journey. I'm looking at my clock and I'm going over the time, so I wanted to cut it out. I I have some additional questions uh, if you're open to it. Go ahead. If you have some questions, I'd be happy to answer them or try to answer them if I can. Yeah, well, I I had a lot of people send questions when they knew you were coming on the show. Um, So these are also like my questions and fan questions here. And one of the things that people were interested in is trying to figure out how do you decide what to go after in life, right? Like we have a lot of young people who've recently finished school or are still early in their career. How do you, how do you decide what to go after? You know, that is a great question. And that plagued me for many years. And I, I, what I've come to the conclusion, if I had to do it all over again, it would be a lot simpler. Uh, you know, one of the things is that I never had a formal education. I never went to college. So you don't get the kind of direction you get in a college. I just sort of bumbled my way. And then I came through a quote by James Allen. He says, you either learn by wisdom and knowledge and suffering and woe, and you continue to suffer until you learn. 
So I decided after all this suffering, maybe I should gain something by wisdom because that's obviously the easier way. So I've devoted my life to studying, besides the market, studying wisdom by all the great thinkers and see what they thought their life was worth. I think the first thing you have to do is I never thought I had any talents, inborn talents, and I, because everything I tried was very difficult and I wasn't very successful at it, no matter what I tried. So I figured, well, I wasn't given any gifts. But one of the things that I, my brothers always said to me, you don't have any talent. My brothers were very talented, but you have the ability to make up your mind and stick with it against all odds. And I don't think that's even a talent that comes from faith that comes from the belief. And so I think that the first thing I would do if I didn't know what I was going to do is I would let the subconscious mind tell me where my innate talents are, where the directions are. And you can do that very easily. And I'll give you an example. What you do is you get a notebook, an empty file, and then you pick up the newspaper and you ask yourself, if I was to ask you a question, what's your favorite movie? I'd write that down. What's your favorite book? What's your favorite athlete? What's your favorite personality? What is it? So you put all these things together. And then when you open up the newspaper, I would ask you, when you open up the newspaper, what's the first section you turn to? Somebody will say, well, I look at the drama page, or I look at the sports page, or I look at the financial section, or I look at the news headlines. So you do that for about 10 to 12 days. You just don't think about it. You open up the newspaper and say, the first thing I do when I turn up the newspaper, I go to the opinion section of the Wall Street Journal because they have some of the greatest writers that are trying to be objective about the world events. And I'm interested in the whole world, what's going on. And so I, people would think that I would turn to the financial page because I'm a money manager. But no, my favorite page is the opinion section to get the idea of what is the truth because they're trying to be objective. Now, like any newspaper, they have people with biases, but the good thing is they always print an opposite point of view. So I get to see both sides of the coin. And that's what you want to do as a money manager. You want to study the people who are bullish and you want to study the people who are bearish because the bears will point out things that are wrong that you might not want to consider. And the bulls will tell you all the great things. And so you always go into between and Whenever I hear a great story, the first thing I want to know is what's the opposite side? What's the other side of it? Because there always is another side. And when I see a stock that I own that develops a high short position, I start saying, what do these guys know that I don't know? So I get in touch with different short sellers and people who give me the bear side. And then I say, geez, there's some things that they've mentioned that I hadn't thought about. So that takes me from extreme bullishness maybe to the middle. So it makes me easier ability to sell or change my mind. So you always want to go to both sides of the fence and try to figure that out. And so what I would do is collect all this information, put it into a file, and then after a while say, geez, I turn to the opinion section all the time. Or when I look at a movie, it's something to do with this. So that's another thing. And then when I read my book, my favorite book is this. And when I look at my favorite movies, those are the movies. And pretty soon you start to see, is there an interest in dance? Is there an interest in music? Is there an interest in finance? Is there an interest in learning? 
whatever it may be, what's your favorite magazines? You know, what, what kind of people do you admire? That's a great one to go. Just who's the most important, uh, if, like a star, a football star or financial analyst today in the money management field, you'd say Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And if you're in the artistic area, you look at those. And then you study those people and say, would you like to be doing what they're doing? Now, the truth is you can do what they are doing if you just program it in your mind. And if you're a young person, you can accomplish anything that they have accomplished. So it's great to have a role model. Uh, when I was a rope climber, I always studied the person that had that type of style that was developed. And I developed that technique and all of the things learned from them. So there's a quotation by Socrates. He says, spend your time learning from wise people, what it took them all their life to learn, and you could learn it in a small period of time. That's why I love quotes, because quotes capsulize things. And one of the great uh, prime minister of England was a guy that I really admire because he overcame so many hardships. And he had a quote that says, there are several quotes that I like, but the one he said, the way you learn is you study hard, you suffer a lot, and you observe a lot. So through all your suffering, you can learn great wisdom, wisdom that you may never have learned any other way. Because when you're suffering, you're concentrating your mind on the thing that is bothering you. And the more you concentrate on that, the more the subconscious mind works on it and then shoots you an answer. It doesn't matter who's right or wrong. What is the truth? Seeking of the truth should be a life obsession. The truth about the stock market, the truth about politics, the truth about whatever you're studying. And so my focal point is, what is the truth? When I start out to study something, where do I find the truth? What is the truth? And that guides you into areas that you never thought you would enter. And I would say, and I don't have the qualifications to do it, but for those of who are listening, who are qualified, I would say the real truth is going to come through quantum physics. That is the latest development in physics, not the latest. It's been going on for 30 to 40 years, but it's becoming more mainstream. And I have been reading a lot about quantum physics, not because I understand the math, because I don't. I'd have trouble getting through a fourth grade math class, but I can see what they teach and what they teach, and this is the single most exciting thing I can tell you today, Sean, what they teach is exactly what the subconscious teaches, that you can create, your, your thoughts can create reality. And there is a, you asked me who would be the person I'd want to interview. There's a quantum physicist who was part of the book, What the Bleep Do You Know? And he wrote in this uh, book, he has a quote, he says, if somebody asked me, can a, can a human being walk on water? I'd say the answer is yes. So from a quantum physics, you can create the type of dynamic in your mind that can go against matter. And you could walk on water. He says, then how come most people don't? He says, because when you say you're going to walk on water, you have an ocean of negativity that tells you you can't do it. So belief is the single most important fact in 
in creating beliefs in the subconscious mind. And if there's anybody there that is lacking the faith that this could work, that this is the way it works, then all you have to do is repeat something over and over again, and your subconscious mind will begin to believe it. It will even believe a lie. You've probably met some people who say he believes his own BS, right? Mm -hmm. Well, they do. That's what makes them so excessive. They keep on repeating a lie. They get to believing it after a while. And then they act on it, and it gives you. It, it can become very convincing. The most convincing liars are the ones who've com who have convinced themselves on a subconscious basis that they believe that lie. That's what advertising does. You hear these silly commercials, and you say, how could they ever get somebody to buy this? This commercial is ridiculous. Well, what they do is they play this commercial, and the first thing they say is, oh, this is BS. So you're relaxing. You're not really listening with your conscious mind, but they get to your subconscious mind. And if they keep on repeating it, they're going to get to you whether you reject it on a conscious basis or not, because the most important way to affect the subconscious mind is that's why you use hypnosis. You relax the person so much, they become more suggestible. And I use the techniques of the subconscious mind on my son, who was an athlete. Just to give you the bottom line, he was a shot putter, and most guys were 6'4", 240. He was maybe 5'8", 190, 200 pounds at the heaviest. And he was able to compete among them because we used to hypnotize him for the meet. I programmed him every night during track season. And one time he had a sprained ankle. He had to go into a cast. We had a championship meet nine days later. And the doctor said, he's out for the season. And I said, well, we have a championship meet nine days from now. And we have to win that. That's what we've been programming for. And he says, well, Arnold, I'm sorry. Even if you put him in a cast, when he steps on the leg, it's going to hurt. That's why in a cast you wear crutches so you don't hurt your ankle. I said, well, I'm going to hypnotize him and anesthetize him. And so he said, oh, I'll turn him over to you. You let it go. Anyway, long story short, I, I rented a hotel room. I hypnotized him for the meet. And normally I take him out of the hypnosis before the meet. I left him under hypnosis the whole meet. He won the meet and he threw six inches from the best he'd ever thrown in his life. So that's what can be done when you focus and concentrate your mind. And there are literally, and I, we've done some other things that would almost sound miraculous, but they're not. They're capable, the, the subconscious is capable of doing these kind of things. And I would encourage all of the people who are interested in this to pursue the study of the subconscious hypnosis and People with bad backs, you know, most of that is mental problem. I've cured many people that had back problems for 20 or 30 years in a few sessions of hypnosis and things of that nature. And if there's anybody who has bad backs, I would recommend a book by uh, uh, Dr. Sarno. Uh, it's called Healing Back Pain, and he was a back surgeon. And he came to the conclusion after back doing back surgery for 25 years that most people's problems was not physical, but it was emotional stress that the subconscious uses, put you in pain to take you off your main problems. And then as you focus on the pain, your subconscious reroutes itself and gets rid of the back pain. And I sent a book on the subject to one guy 
and he had back problem for 20 years. It was cured in one session, and he did it himself. So there's a lot of potential in there, Sean. I'm sorry that we're probably way over time. I apologize for that, but there's a lot to cover. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm actually curious. Um, it, it's so funny that the majority of what you talk about ha has nothing to do with, with finance, investing, money management, anything like that. What are you looking for in someone you hire? Well, the first thing I would look for is character. You know, there's a guy by the name of George Draper. He wrote a quote, and he's the co-founder of Hudson Dateson, which became Target. So the co-founder of Target. And he said, of all the things a person can achieve, the most important one is character. And that allows you to do things way beyond what your normal intelligence would do. So a person with lower intelligence but higher character is going to achieve greater things. So the first thing I do is look for character. The second thing I would look for is unselfishness. We're all programmed to be selfish, to survive. And I've mentioned that before. So the most important thing is to overcome our selfishness, to be considerate of others and to help others and to do things for the good of the team. And so with a person on your team, you want him to be a person of character, who's selflessness, who's interested in doing good for the client. And then I would look at his qualifications. And the most important thing I would look for is experience. You cannot learn certain things, no matter how much you study the books. I'll give you an example. The Greeks started the Olympics, and the Greeks started the Olympics to train their to train their leaders. So they, uh, there was a there's a page written by Plato in the book, The Republic, and he talks about that. And he said, we train our students through all of the theoretical knowledge up to age 35. He said, and he actually called them PhDs. That's where their PhDs come from. He said, are they ready to become rulers? He says, nay. He says, they have theoretical education, but they have not been in the cave of the world. He said, let these PhD join in the cave of the world. Let them deal with men of cunning and men of brawn. Let them get their philosophical shins kicked by the crude realities of the world. Some of our perfect products will break down, but those that survive, scarred and sober, armed with all the intelligence and tradition, armed with all the intelligence, culture, and tradition can teach them, these men will become the rulers of the state. So you want the character, you want the theoretical knowledge, but you want the experience. They got to be in the cave of the world to deal with the crude realities of the world and get sand down by the merciless frictions of life. That's what I'm looking for. Well, speaking of be being in the cave of the world there, you, you've got a tremendous amount of investing insights and wisdom. I'm wondering for you, what are you looking at? You mentioned before about understanding both sides. What else are you looking at to better understand your investments? Well, the, the thing, you can't get enough of a knowledge or experience in the investment thing. But the thing what I look for are themes. For example, we are going into a period of inflation. And for those listeners who are interested, I made a tape for Guru Focus. It's on our website. It's called, Is Inflation Transitory? And it's about an hour lecture on how I see the world and what I believe is going to happen. And in short, to answer your direction, I believe we're going into a period of a commodity boom. We are in a commodity boom. That commodity boom will is going to last about seven or eight years. 
And the best investments are going to be in companies that are actually producing the commodities. Those are usually your worst kind of business. They have the highest interest costs. They have the lowest margins and they're terrible businesses as a rule. However, during this time, over the next seven or eight years, there are going to be the best investments you can imagine. And in the tape, I talk about the six or seven investments that did the best during the 70s inflation, which, by the way, I started my business in during the 70s inflation. So I have experience in it. And my first 10 years in the business, which I didn't really know that much because I was just getting started. I had a track record of 195 to 20% a year. I outperformed the S&P by 5%, and I didn't really know that much about what I was doing. And the reason is because the market had gotten beaten up. I started my business three months before the bottom, and things were so shaky and things were so contrary that people thought the world was going to end. And I told my wife, you know, Either the world is going to end or we're going to make a lot of money for our clients. And that's what happened. Because the lesson I learned from that is the single most important thing to know about stocks is whether they're cheap or not. Now, I'm not talking necessarily about cyclical stocks or commodity stocks. I'm talking about all stocks. And there are great companies and there are good companies and there are not so good companies. But value is the thing that determines your return. And so when you can find a company at an extreme discount to valuation, that's when you make your money. And to prove it is those 10 years were the best performing years out of my 40 to 50, well, almost 50 years of history as far as outperforming. Now, we outperformed the market for 38 years by 2%, but this was a period of outperformance by 5% for 10 years, and that's the area when the time when I knew the least, I was just getting started. I was just learning about it. And so it wasn't the wisdom that made that performance. It was the price I paid. We had stocks selling at four to five times earnings with six to 7% dividend selling at three times cash flow. Jeez. Well, you don't have to be too bright <laughs> if you just buy a basket of those. And I remember I used to agonize. I had 30 stocks and I said, this one's got a little lower P and this. It wouldn't have mattered. I could have bought all of them and they would have all been fabulous. And that's what happened. So after struggling through a bear market as a salesman, I was selling securities from 68. It started at the worst time at the top and it bottomed at 1974. And so all this time while the market was going up and down for six painful years, while my clients were getting creamed in the mutual funds that I was selling, I was studying the market to figure out what I learned is there were some group of mutual fund investors that did much better than others. And so I kept asking myself, why are these guys doing better than others? It turns out they were all disciples of Benjamin Graham. So I became a student of Benjamin Graham. I read everything he said, read or anything. And he was the guy that inspired, obviously, Warren Buffett. But Warren Buffett was just getting started at time. Actually, he finished his partnership, and then he got back into the market in 74, which was very timely. But the point I'm making is that the, the research that I learned from what Benjamin Graham taught, taught me that the single most important thing, and Warren Buffett kind of changed it. He amplified it and, and made a little more enlightenment in it, but he took the basic principles 
that price determines your return. And so when we were looking at the inflation, we got into the oil business. We bought oil stocks and we were punished for that, for being early. They came down very dramatically, but we stuck with it. We continued to buy them. We continued to average down. And we have a big percentage of our money, 15 to 20% of our portfolio is in oil stocks, which have done very well and are doing very well. And they're going to continue to do well. And to give you an example, if you watch the video, I say gold was the greatest, no, oil was the best performing uh, asset class during the 70s. The second was all gold. The third was silver. The fourth was copper and an unweighted index of commodities. That means if you had 20 commodities and each invested in each one, performed 22% while the S&P produced 2%. So I believe over the next 10 years, the best performing asset class is going to be commodities, not buying the commodities themselves, but buying the companies that produce it and uh, at the right price. And then the other sector of the market that'll do extremely well are companies that have good growth rates at reasonable prices and that have the ability to pricing power, to have the ability to, to pass on the price. And let me give you an example of what happened to uh, stocks in the inflation of the 70s. At 72, the, uh, the uh, inflation rate was 2.64. Two years later, it was 11%. And your PE went from 19 on the S&P to 7.8 at the bottom. So you can see the compression of the PE, even if the earnings went up. If your if your if your if your multiple contracts fifty to sixty percent, even though the earnings stay even, your price goes down. So there's going to be a tremendous compression in multiples, and it's already starting to happen, and it'll get worse. On the other hand, if you can buy a good growth company with a good product that has pricing power, and is priced properly, then those are the ways you can protect yourself against inflation. So there's two kinds that I think will do well. Companies that produce the commodities and the companies that have good growth records and who are reasonably priced and are priced for higher interest rates because there's no way they can cut the inflation rate unless they raise the interest rates and they're not going to do it because they're afraid to do it because if you raise the interest rates too much, you cause a recession. And if you don't raise it enough, inflation is gonna go. And I've always said for the last five years, I said the Fed is in a box. They've created so much money through quantitative easing that there's no way to avoid this situation. And as one guy said, the box is starting to look like a coffin. The Fed has really got a serious problem. I would not want to be a Fed official. One of the Fed official quarrels, I think is his name, he, uh, he recently resigned, but he said the only way that the Fed can stop inflation is to get the interest rates above the inflation rate, and the inflation rate is 7%. So you'd have to raise the rates pretty much to do that, and they can't do that because we'd be in a recession. So it's going to be a problem. And uh, in that video, 
I talk about the amount of debt that was created in the last two years. In the last two years, we created $3 trillion worth of debt each year, $6.4 trillion. And I measured the amount of debt that we created from the time they started counting it in 1900 to 19 to 2205. And over the last two years, we created more debt than we've done in the last 105 years. Jeez. So there's just no way out. And now the war has just aggravated that situation. But the main reason you're in a commodity bull market, Sean, is because there has been no investments or minimum investments in commodity companies for the last 10 years because everybody was in the S&P and it was doing so well. You know, who needs commodities? So they didn't invest in them, including the oil business. And now there's going to be shortages. And so the other reason is that the renewable energy, the green energy revolution, is requiring huge amounts of commodities for the batteries for the electric cars and the windmills and the solar panels and all the chemicals that go into it. I'm sorry, commodities. And there was a study from Finland. It's almost 500 pages. And I read every word of it. And they were a company, a, a research center that is really interested in getting away from fossil fuels and doing renewable energy. But they came to the conclusion that there isn't enough minerals to support the, the, the movement to the renewable energy. And we're going to have to learn to produce those commodities and so forth. And just an example, we have a client that uh, his job is to look for places to drill for copper, to produce copper. And, and we said in the video that it would take nine to 12 months to produce a copper mine. He said it's 12 to 15 years now because of the, all the regulations and you got to have water there. And so if you were to replace the electric vehicle, if you replace internal engine, with electric vehicle, it would take nine times the production of copper that we produce today. Mm. And if it takes 12 to 15 years to produce a copper mine, and you know that copper goes into everything electrical, whether it's electrical, solar, anything that you have electricity, you need copper. You can see that copper is going to be a great investment for the future. And we expect a dramatic increase in the price of copper, the price of gold, the price of oil's already moved up quite a bit. Uh, silver has a long way to go, and many commodities have a way to go. But I would not necessarily suggest that you buy the commodities, although if you're commodity trading, you know what you're doing. That's different. I would buy the companies that produce the material. Well, Arnold, you and I obviously could talk about markets, the subconscious, uh, life principles for hours and hours and hours. So I, I thank you yeah, so you much for, for your time here. This was this was a really impactful uh, conversation with you, um, your story, what you've overcome and, and what you've created. So I just cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. My pleasure, uh, Sean, and thanks for the opportunity. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.